The views expressed by guests on this podcast are the opinions of the speakers and not PCCA. This podcast is intended to be educational and informative. PCCA does not endorse or advocate any practice that is not consistent with federal and state laws or regulations. Check with your local board of pharmacy about any issues in your particular jurisdiction. Welcome to the Mortar and Pestle, a PCCA podcast where we discuss all things compounding and all things concerning pharmacy. Now, here are your hosts, Mike Delisio, North American Sales Director, and Sebastian Dennison, Clinical Compounding Pharmacist. Welcome, Compounding World. Welcome to the latest episode of a Mortar and Pestle, a PCCA podcast. This is Mike Delisio, joined Sebastian Dennison, as always. Man, it feels like we haven't done one of these in a while. Yeah, I, I would probably relate. Um, I feel like we've been bouncing around. It's been a, a hectic summer, uh, but we're back in the studio with a familiar voice. Um, and a very happy face. A very happy face. <laughs> Someone who looks extremely happy to be back in PCCA. A lot of you don't get a chance to see him, but he's wearing his PCCA blue today. Uh, retired about, what, a year and a half ago, Bruce? That is correct. Year yeah. and a half. A year and a half, but you were on the podcast a year ago. I was on a podcast roughly around this time last year. Which is amazing to have you back. So for those of you that recognize the voice, this is none other than Bruce Biondo, a former member of our clinical services team, but still extremely active in his research relating to men's health. Yeah, thank you. Um, I particularly have been eager to talk about this study, a major study, since I learned of this study, and, and last year when I was with you, I mentioned that study would be forthcoming. And so when I saw the study, read it, and I was extremely pleased because it, it got what I considered very favorable results. And I thought this is the kind of thing that a lot of people are not necessarily going to hear about because there's research that's coming out all the time. And most of the time, people only hear about something when there's a catastrophe, when there's danger, when something was proved wrong. But good science that comes out routinely, and in this case, a major study, often goes unnoticed. And I, I don't want that to happen with this particular project. And I'm happy that you reached out to us because that's how we're here today. Um, somebody who's been so involved with our company for such a long time, have helped out so many of our members over the years. Even though you're retired, you're not taking your brain away from this stuff. And that's that's the inspiring part. That's the cool part. I, I would still think that we consider you as one of those men's health experts in the field. I'm sure a lot of our members who called into clinical services with testosterone requests, with blood work, with whatever it was, would always try to seek you out. And you're, you're probably that missing link uh, <laughs> and somebody who they miss speaking to. They have Sebastian, but... Oh, he's I, no Bruce. <laughs> I am no Bruce. There's, I, I don't think we have another Bruce on the team. There's a lot of us who are trying to live up to those very, very large, intelligently designed shoes. To to focus on a particular subject, in my case, I largely focus on testosterone, is to realize how much clinical data there really is. Uh, I, some of you you, you know, may know that some time ago I put together like a, a, a research uh, reference of like 700 different articles I read. And looking at the studies that I'm going to be talking about today, these uh, really serious researchers used a lot of research on their own. There's one particular article had about 40 citations along with it. Uh, another article I was referencing uh, by the Endocrine Society had like 150 citations. So 
what is presented in the article often represents vastly more information in a, in a background. So Bruce, what have you been up to? Um, I think that's the well, big question. Before we too. talk about just just the research yeah. aspect, what else have you been up to? <laughs> and, that's and, some more fun. Yeah, stuff. I know we discussed it a year ago, but you know, obviously, you haven't taken your eye off of all this. So, this was one of the things that I've been looking for. This particular study, I'm going to talk about in a little bit. Um, it was a study that, when I heard about it, I thought this is going to be really significant, and I want to know what you know. What are you going to do? And so, I've been looking for it for a long time. Now, relative to other things I've been doing. Leading a relatively quiet life. We still have a, our house out in the country, still enjoy going out there about half the time, enjoying the beauty of the, of the woods, of the, uh, birds, the water, all that stuff. Uh, my wife has had a little bit of illness issues in the last few months, so part of the time I'm staying, make, sh make sure she's doing okay. Uh, I'm still going to the gym all the time, so I'm trying my best to keep myself in good physical shape. That's great to hear. You look awesome. Um, and you must have a very strong internet connection no matter where you are because you're pulling in data and you're pulling in clinical references from everywhere. So you're, it sounds like you're occupying your spare time in that regard and still keeping your eye, keeping your, your brain within the realm of what you spent your professional career on. And that's incredible to hear. And mm. I know our audience appreciates when you come on and talk about testosterone mainly because I don't think we've ever had an expert discuss men's health to the extent that Bruce has. I'm very pleased that Don Batoni has a special interest and Don periodically will contact me uh, and, and I found some citations to send Don's way to give him a little bit more background. Well, let's get into it. Uh, okay. Let's learn more about the study that you've been looking for. And obviously I know we, we had a chance to, a year ago, it was a bit different. It was, I believe more or less talking about long COVID and the impacts exactly. on testosterone and, and what the implications were on individuals who had suffered through COVID and then their, exactly. you know, their testosterone results and, and, yeah. and the implications on the male body. So what is this study? Why is this well, different? Well, before we jump, Mike, sure. cause like, I know everyone's like, Oh, I want to hear the study. And this is, you yeah. know, this is keep you engaged. Um, but really and truly what, What's what is the relevance of this discussion going back a few years first, and why is this sure. study such a big deal? Yeah, absolutely. That's a, I, I, that's a really good point, Sebastian. Thank you so much. The study I'm going to talk about is a brand new study on cardiovascular health, primarily cardiovascular health. Back in 2014, there were several articles that were published and got a lot of attention, stating that testosterone replacement therapy caused an increase in cardiovascular risks. And that caught the attention of the FDA, and the FDA began to look and got, got real concerned. And in 2015, the FDA mandated uh, two things of significance. One was a drastic change in the package insert for testosterone, which makes it look like a really, really dangerous drug. I mean, there were some significant points that were very valid about uh, transfer of, of the hormone to a child or, or to a female. But a lot of the other things seemed to be more like not based on good clinical evidence. And in fact, major medical organizations kind of fought back and said, we don't quite agree with that. And we, that's not what we're seeing. And so between what the FDA had said and what these major medical organizations were saying, there was not full agreement. So the FDA in 2015 said, okay, there seems to be some differences of opinion. So here's the deal. You guys who manufacture testosterone products, are gonna do a major 
clinical trial and let's see what happens. And so that major clinical trial uh, was started and it went over several years. It, the total thing was like over three years, but came to be known as the Traverse Study, T-R-A-V-E-R-S-E, that's common the name that was given, and that's simply an acronym for what they studied. But the, the people who participated in the study took it very, very seriously. We gotta do a good study. And I'm not a true statistician. I don't understand all the statistical terms, but here's what I do understand. That when they put this study together, they, in, they use statisticians so that they can arrive at numbers that would really be valid. Numbers that you could put some stock in. And so they, they wanted to find out, does testosterone cause an increase in cardiovascular risk or not. And with a statistician's assistance, they determined they needed a really large base of people, so you can see that. They enrolled 5,200 men, and essentially they broke them down into two groups. The men uh, who were gonna get the testosterone and the men who received the placebo had identical pump products. And the studies was really widespread. Uh, again, the point is, it is undetermined previously going into this whether or not cardiovascular uh, risk is it is cardiovascular health is at risk with testosterone or not. The study encompassed over 300 sites, over 300 physicians participated. And one of the things I came to appreciate as I was reading this study was what's the difference between a study that is published and a study with high power that is published. High power means, can you really count on the information here? Is it so defined that you're gonna get definite answers? And so by coming up with 5,200 people, they came across that by mathematical uh, configurations. What do we need so that we can get clear-cut answers? And uh, the men who participated in the study, as I said, sites all over the United States, were between 45 years old and 80 years old. They were all men who had lower testosterone numbers, meaning in this case, below 300 nanograms per deciliter. Uh, and they had to be also having a sign of hypogonadism. Mm -hmm. In other words, signs and symptoms. So you had the levels, you also had symptoms of hypogonadism. So the men were put in these groups and the, uh, the, the testosterone group was uh, dosed between 80 milligrams and eight, uh, 60 milligrams and 80 milligrams every day. I want to say a little bit about the baseline testing. One of the things that was um, important is how did they get these, how did they determine the numbers? They insisted on having two baseline numbers and they were fasting numbers. Fasting being an important factor in measuring testosterone. Uh, and it's not that well publicized, but, but it was important in this case. So the parameters for the study were that we want to get numbers between 350 nanograms per deciliter and 750. We're not shooting for the record. We're not trying to see how high we go. We want to see 
What happens if we get men between 350 nanograms per deciliter and 750? And so in some cases, they had to adjust the doses. Uh, some men might have started at 60 and perhaps went up to 75. The other part is if men had any serious uh, side effects, if they had a heart attack, they were taken out of, out of the study. If men had numbers that went over 750, they were taken out. If men had a hematocrit of 54% or greater, they were taken out. Now, I will tell you that uh, that leaves the bulk of the people. The bulk of the people are not people who are going to get 750 grams per deciliter. The bulk of the people are not going to get up to 54% uh, from hematocrit. So they were studied and evaluated. And, uh, and, and, and this is an important piece because 60 to 80 milligrams of testosterone as a dose isn't considered high or outrageous. We weren't, again, like you said, we weren't shooting for these uh, bull elephant numbers. I've heard that term from you before, but we were also looking for a defined um, sort of um, sort of parameter yeah. because that actually works into what we're seeing clinically. We don't want 900s and 1100s exactly. and 1200s exactly. because, oh, more is better. We're actually looking at this parameter of like, hey, that we know that this is actually a functional, useful number that we can kind of hang our hat on as clinicians. And I think that's important to know what the numbers were. You know, we're yeah. not, not shooting so that we weren't evaluating some people had really high numbers and some people got really low numbers. We're, we're talking about numbers of people within a particular range. So... Uh, what, what impressed me about the study was the size of the study. Reading a little bit about the, uh, the science of the study. Again, that's kind of boring stuff. You got, if you're a statistician, you eat it up. If you're not a statistician like me, you say, what are they trying to say? Can they say it in a simpler way? But essentially, getting numbers you could count on. Not just a study where you treated 30 guys and then you say 22 of them felt better, therefore. You know, in this case, we're talking, we're treating the guys and we're not treating the people and then we're evaluating. And again, having sufficient numbers, high numbers, where you can literally get clear cut answers. You can differentiate between cause and effect. Exactly, exactly. So that gets into the power and also uh, a term which is hardly ever used, but it was used in the conclusion here, none inferior. So the first time I read the term non-inferior, I say, gee, that sounds like awkward terminology. What are they saying here? What they concluded was that the testosterone therapy was non-inferior to placebo relative to cardiovascular disease. And you can look up non-inferior, but essentially it's saying had no worse effect. And again, that's contradictory to what had been stated back in 2014 and 2015. And, and as I say, I, I, it resulted in the FDA mandating a package insert to look like this was a really dangerous substance. I went back and read it the other day and I was, I was just kind of surprised. It, it, it is a significant piece of information because the FDA is the one that requested this. This is a response. This was done by manufactured products uh, manufacturers. Right. And this was, like you said, a multi-site, multi-physician and multi-author paper that has this uh, level of impact. And, and you said it was it's found in a, in a pretty reputable journal. Very reputable it, journal. I, I was going back to see how do you define whether a, a, a journal is reputable or not? Part of it is 
who are the people who write for it. Part of it is how many people actually read it. Another is how many people actually try to get published. And I read where New England Journal gets 16,000 submissions a year. They're not going to print 16,000, but that's how many people are trying to get published the New England Journal. So it's a um, very high-powered journal, a high-powered study. And from my standpoint, when I saw some names I recognized, uh, one of there's a, a urologist here in Houston who's participated in some PCCA events. I was very happy to see that he was part of it. There's an endocrinologist who's also at Baylor, whom I've known for many years and way, way back when he participated in uh, events at PCCA. So when I saw names like that, I said, these are serious people who are making time for a really important project. So I, I appreciate all of the efforts of those people who put in, who went into this. And, and Mike, I know I'm sort of stealing a little bit of questions here, but I, I find it uh, very interesting because you wrote a document back in, I want to say 2014, 2014, late 2014, 2015, and it's still available on our C or our M files. Um, but literally you were vindicated in your paper. Like yeah. this is something you wrote back and you said, look, this, this doesn't make sense. The science isn't there. And, and now we have a journal article published in 2023 in the new England journal of medicine that states right. what you were discussing seven, eight years ago. Yeah, this do document I wrote uh, that's uh, is, is in the M files commentary, commentary and recent news reports about testosterone supplementation. So in the case of recent, this was talking about 2014 recent. Yeah. So I went back and looked at it. I was going to see how far off, off was I? And I was, I was pretty glad to see that, <laughs> that I, I had taken literature as best I could understand it. Uh, and this particular, the new study, it leaves nothing to chance in a sense. Mm -hmm. Now, it doesn't say testosterone is completely uh, harm-free. You still need to use medical uh, surveillance for proper use. Testing, appropriate evaluation, right. appropriate monitoring of the right. patient as they continue going on, and yeah, there's something uh, doses. I, I want to. That's uh, the other part. So yeah. yeah. So, so the the, the uh, I want to make another uh, uh, statement here, and I want to. Uh, perhaps do a few other things. But another issue, as I was saying earlier to Ryan, was prostate cancer. So the very first clinical article I read about testosterone was in 1998. It was an endocrinologist at Vanderbilt University. I remember thinking at the time I read it, gee whiz, I'm reading about what testosterone does. I'm reading about the precautions. Why aren't more people doing this? Why aren't more people interested in this? Now, there was a precaution about prostate cancer. In my view, that is something you can address. You can address screening for prostate cancer. So at that time, I didn't quite see why more people were not doing testosterone. And so that was one of the reasons I got pretty excited about it and why I started looking for uh, uh, great numbers of clinical literature. Well, over the years, the prostate cancer part has kind of gone down in, in terms of a concern. A lot of physicians have done studies, some of which have been cited. I, I have certainly tried to point them out in, in the years gone by where uh, that the, 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 the point that testosterone or the, the theory that testosterone caused prostate cancer it simply did not seem to be valid. What is valid is if there is an existing tumor, then you have to be very careful with testosterone use. Even there, uh, some of the physicians I know, including 
uh, urologists here in Houston participated in studies in giving uh, testosterone to men who had prostate cancer and having them under careful surveillance and, and without further harm. One of the things that is confusing about testosterone is, uh, does it raise PSA levels? Because a lot of people simply are looking at PSA. Well, uh, this Harvard urologist, Dr. Morgan Thaler, pointed out some years ago that if a man has very low testosterone numbers, he's likely to have a very low PSA number. And to the extent that his testosterone numbers come up from being very low, his PSA may rise, but he said it only rises to a certain point, and he called it the uh, receptive saturation theory. That when you don't have receptors sat saturated, the testosterone is gonna start filling those receptors and the PSA will go along. Once the receptors are saturated, there's no further growth. And that seemed to be what uh, most studies show. So again, uh, the studies primarily about cardiovascular, secondarily, they also, uh, kind of said also we, we monitored prostate cancer in a similar way we did for cardiovascular. We found no further, and the numbers are in the article. Uh, the article is fascinating to read. Um, I want to say briefly how you might be able to get the article. The name of the article is Cardiovascular Safety of Testosterone Replacement Therapy. And if anyone's listening, might not be able to write that down. There's an identifying number under PubMed, it's called PMID number, PMID, and the PMID number for this is 373-26322. Again, 373-26322. And, and, and keeping in mind, like some, some of you out there may be saying, oh, uh, we're gonna reach out to clinical services, can you send us a study? We may have access to the study, but we cannot um, send the study because of copyright. But I do believe that there are other ways. And Bruce? Yeah, yeah this is uh, one of the things I found was you can go to PubMed quickly and you can get the abstract of the article. It essentially tells you what the article, what the study did without all of the big details. But New England Journal offers something. If you sign up, you can get two free articles. This was one of my two free articles. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you can actually get this article and one more if you have a need to without signing up. And now I'm actually getting interesting emails also because my name is on there and I, and I haven't had to pay. Now, if I want to go beyond that, I want to get access to everything clearly, I would have to pay a membership. So so a big recommendation, and I'm, I'm going to try to summarize this as quickly as possible, is number one, testosterone. If you do have questions about this and you do have a huge population of males on testosterone who have these questions, sign up for the New England Journal of Medicine and get a couple of articles, get the emails, because that'll actually fill your inbox with interesting information. Number two, monitoring. I, I, I always want to bring this up. You, you talked about a hematocrit. You talked about a PSA level. You've talked about... Uh, nanograms per deciliter right testing like exactly we're, we're doing blood tests and we're yeah. doing serum tests right um i think there's now urine urinary tests i think dutch is doing those and there's a discussion there and i don't want to get into the merits of which one's best but but testing is crucial testing to is a crucial, trt crucial. program i hear there there's uh there's a position I'm, I'm good friends with who insists that uh urine testing is best i simply don't know urine testing well enough it may if we had a way to test Compare, we might find more out. I don't have that, so I'm gonna go with serum testing. 
one of the things I, I, in looking at this, I want to point out about how the numbers can vary a little bit. And uh, I mentioned earlier about fasting levels. Yep. So I came across an article about why levels can vary on, on, on the same patient that can vary. Well, it, it, two large variables are just presence of food and the presence of glucose. In other words, a heavy meal of any kind it can skew the results. A uh, high amount of sugar can skew the results. So uh, sometimes the members would say, hey, you know, I, I, we're not getting consistent numbers. I don't have a great answer for it, but I will tell you that's been observed with multiple products. In other words, it was observed with commercial products. So you don't always get consistent numbers. What I think is important is to uh, get monitored periodically and also stay in, in tune with your body. How are you feeling? How are you feeling? Uh, in my view, uh, the things that people want testosterone for should be something that they can evaluate and determine, hey, I feel better. Uh, I'm, I'm having more energy. I feel like I, I can do more stuff. And, and I think that's an important way of looking at whether this uh, uh, therapy is working for you. Bruce, I'm curious, um, and I'll kind of jump in here more with the, just the observation question. What do pharmacists do with all this? Because at this point, you know, are they dealing with doctors who are resistant at looking at at testosterone replacement therapy and and what do they do with this type of information? This is really important and this is kind of what drives me trying to put information out. What I found personally is a lot of physicians have a little interest in in hormones in general right. and in this case testosterone because it's confusing to them because they read something here and they read something there. You know, they read it's good, they read it's bad, they don't really know. So rather than get into it, why don't we just stay neutral? What I want ph pharmacists to do is become more knowledgeable. So doctor, what are your concerns? Is it prostate cancer? Is it um, testing questions? Is it cardiovascular? Because you remember reading something years ago. That's what I want. I want more physicians to be open to the idea of testing for testosterone. I was reading this uh, Endocrine Society guidelines a few days ago. Endocrine Society is very uh, powerful, very influential with all their members. And they have huge guideline lists on, on testosterone. And at one point they said, we do not believe in routine screening for all men for testosterone. Okay. Another line they say, we believe that men with low testosterone and you know, symptomatic should be treated. I'm thinking, okay, how do you go from point A to point B without testing? How do you know that they're, uh, whether they are uh, mid-range or low unless you test? So the, the, it's almost like a, a conundrum of uh, you don't want to do it, but then it needs to be done. Yep. So what I want, Mike, for people to do, I want pharmacists to know that there's good sound literature, that the questions of cardiovascular risk, the questions of prostate cancer, a few other things, too, that uh, we have time I'll mention. But those big ones, I want the pharmacists to know what the current literature is showing, not what something was shown 20 years ago, 30 years ago, mm -hmm. what they heard in medical school. What's the current literature showing? That's what I want. And I would love it if I found out that... Uh, as a result of papers like this, the doctors were more, uh, more open to screening for testosterone. 
is it safe to say that this is probably one of the the biggest studies that I'm not going to say debunk prior research or or prior commentary, but is this one of the biggest in the testosterone world that we've come across? In my experience, yes. Number one, you were talking about 5,200 patients. You you can look at hundreds of studies Mm -hmm. before you'll find anything that that broad. Look at the participating physicians, participating sites, and all of that. If someone wants to find all that out through this paper, they they can get it. but no is to your answer. I, Sebastian knows I've read a lot of articles. Mm-hmm. I've never read an article this comprehensive, this scientifically based. A lot of studies are observational. Mm-hmm. Okay, I gave nine patients this, and they I think they felt better. I actually see comments like that. I think they felt better. <laughs> uh, so that's not a, a high-powered study. Right. That doesn't have a lot of scientific impact. You know, as an once again, observation, it almost feels like this is, I'm not going to say comparable because it's a different study, but the Women's Health Initiative that occurred, what, mm-hmm. 22 years ago 2021, now? Uh, 2001, I think. Yeah, so about 22 years ago. Like, it feels almost comparable at that level, mm-hmm. um, putting the bioidentical testosterone replacement The difference is this. That, that study had an incredible impact. Correct. I mean, at the time, Premarin was set for life. They were so happy to be number one. And then Premarin crashed, but not just Premarin crashed, the whole idea of hormones was now in question for a lot of physicians. So they didn't say, oh, that was a Premarin problem. That was a conjugated estrogen problem. That was a medroxyprogesterone problem. They said, oh, that's a hormone problem. So what did not happen, Mike, in my view at least, was a substantial study of, of this size that showed opposite. Now, I have seen studies that said estradiol is great for you, progesterone is good for you, but not to this extent. So yes, uh, to my knowledge, uh, this is remarkable in in the scope of it. Why don't we feel that this is a a bigger deal, that more people have been talking about it? Because obviously you have your ear to the ground, you're paying attention to what's going on. How come this hasn't been <laughs> bad news travels fast bad news travels fast i was about to come up with something exactly like that to my uh it, it, once you're open to, once you find ways to find good literature you find there's good information coming out all the time i would not have found this had i not been looking for this study it came out with barely a, a note i did find out about the storms which we all need to know about about the heat i found out we need to know about that <laughs> but i didn't find anyone who is talking about a major study on testosterone that shows it does not increase cardiovascular issues and that's exactly why you reached out to us yes this is a big deal yeah. we got to get the word out we got to talk about the positive impact of this study and make sure physicians understand the the relevance of this to our to our common patients it, it's exciting it's really exciting well uh, again I, I i want people to know that uh, i'm uh the ijpc journal will have an article on it and, and i think in their next issue uh i want people to read this stuff so that the pharmacists can themselves connect, know what the abstract looks like, even if they don't get the full text. They'll know what the abstract looks like. They'll, they'll, I want them to know that this particular kind of study, New England Journal, carries a lot of impact. And in the process of looking through some of the statistical terms, I said, okay, what does that mean? And as I said, I mentioned some of what it means. It means 
how many people re actually read that particular journal? How many people participate? How many people tr are trying to get published? And so when you see something in a journal of that nature, again, with a huge amount of participation, can you imagine if you had to start off right now and say, we want to do a study, we're going to get about 300 doctors involved. Can you imagine <laughs> what, you, what you were drawn into? Yeah. yeah. So the people who organized the study did an incredible amount of work getting the study pushed forward. And I think, I think at the end of the day, Mike, to, to answer your question more succinctly, um, it, this is absolutely enormous. And for the podcast listeners, you're some of the first to hear about it. And we are absolutely indebted to you, Bruce, for showing up and bringing this to our attention. And I, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to ask, but if you want to write another little article on the <laughs> follow-up article, that would save us a whole bunch of some work. Some of the terms are, are in my expert. mind. You know, um, it, it's... Uh, no, I would be delighted to do that. Uh, this is the really significant. I actually sent a note to one of the physicians in Houston about, I want to thank all the people who participated because there was a lot of work to get it off the ground. There's a lot of work to do that. Uh, most of those people don't get anything extra. A lot of people, those people are participating kind of like how they can do it within the realm of what they're already doing. You know, Bruce, I got to ask you, because you're here and we don't get a chance to see you every single day and it's been a while um are you happy to see the growth of a trevis and you know what that base has represented for the delivery of testosterone topically and and there are so many more adopters year over year that are moving their testosterone prescriptions into that base and i i think that the, i know you're a big part of that development yeah well one of the things that that i always try to convey to pharmacists was that base makes a difference Base makes a difference. And a lot of people think, oh, it's all topical. It's all transdermal. All those terms are, they mean the same thing. It's going on the skin. And when uh, people do a study, they're usually talking about a particular product. Pharmacists sometimes, I think, misunderstand and, and assume it means any topical, any base. And, and it clearly does not. And, and uh, you know, if you look at any of the studies, they usually have specified how, how to use the product, how much of the product to use. And, in, and certainly in this particular study, it was really specified how, how, how much to use. And uh, Sebastian mentioned earlier about the uh, value of continuing to monitor patients. Bruce, I just want to say thank you again. It is so good to see you back. Um, just for all of the listeners, I actually sent a picture of you out to our consulting team and they're already responding like, great to see someone so so committed to the compounding world continuing to be passionate and continuing to educate us thank you oh my pleasure i'm so glad you had me so i was i you know contacted you and, and and so i'm thinking gee i haven't heard back from him and i'm wondering maybe they didn't like the idea no Next you thing, put me on the spot it's my fault <laughs> no no i was on vacation when i got the email then i so, come back and i'm like bruce we gotta get so him the next in thing I, I knew i get a note from av said it's scheduled today oh okay i guess <laughs> okay no we're bruce, paying we, attention we love having you here i'm i'm also speaking for our audience and presuming that they love hearing from you as well it's such a great topic whenever something new like this comes up it's another excuse for us to publish another episode on it because it's not something that will ever go away. It just constantly evolves and grows. And I know you're part of that. So, you know, it's gonna, we're going to have a hard time finding another guest to come on and talk on this topic without inviting you first. I will tell you what, something that is um, I, I continually look for because uh, do we have a couple of minutes? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So 
couple of years ago, I came across information on prostate cancer. And I, I recall uh, that I actually mentioned it. I had never heard the podcast. So finally last week, listened to the podcast to see what it sounded like. And I actually recall, oh, I did mention something about prostate cancer. Well, one of the things I, I came across uh, when doing this was several articles that again related to estradiol in the prostate. And so what I'm hoping to find is more information about the role of estradiol in the prostate because what seems to happen is that there's a great amount of, greater amount of estradiol is converted from testosterone in the prostate than in the rest of the body. Mm -hmm. And there's another factor uh, uh, which is, uh, estrogen receptor alpha and beta. It's re recognized widely that they have different functions, that um, uh, alpha is more proliferative than beta, beta is more protective. For some reason, beta slows down activity in the prostate. So those are two questions that I'll be looking to see more. I, I pulled up a couple articles while I was uh, doing this stuff the other day. And I don't find people who have absolute answers how to treat it, but they are recognizing now that there's a different hormonal in, environment in the prostate, greater conversion to estradiol than in the rest of the body, which doesn't, you know, doesn't convince me in itself that using aromatase inhibitors and, uh, systemically would necessarily affect the prostate. And the others about the estrogen receptor uh, not being, uh, being less active in the prostate. So the, those are kind of things that if I get a mag get home and find a magical article that suddenly elucidates all that, I'll be say, "Hey, we're, we're, think... we're going to be back with you <laughs> at the studio and be like, all right, Bruce, take us back to school. Let's do it." I know this will be going up soon, and like I said, Bruce, it's an honor to have you back. Always a pleasure to see you and to chat with you because I know you're you're on top of the game, and that, I think that's the coolest part about you specifically as an individual. I don't think you're ever going to let it go, which is great. And thanks for bringing amazing new content and amazing new information. It's my pleasure to be with you. Thank you both. That's and, great. And as a, as a fellow colleague in the clinical services, thank you as always. Yeah, pleasure seeing you. And thank you for all of our listeners who tuned into to this episode. Got a chance to hear from Bruce. I know it's uh, it happens almost yearly, but it's a great opportunity. And um, <laughs> We'll talk to you next summer. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll talk to you next summer. I'm sure you'll have something new. And once again, follow us along on social media, whether it's LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. And last but not least, don't forget to hit that subscribe button so that you do not miss an episode on the platform of your choice. Thank you again. Once again, this is Mike Delisio, and we'll talk to you again. <laughs> <laughs>